0: Conversations on Healthcare, I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, there's more mounting evidence linking the Zika virus with birth defects in newborns as well as neurological disorders in adults. There have been a number of reported cases around the U.S. from those who've traveled to the affected areas, and concern is mounting in this country ahead of the warmer months when the mosquitoes could be a problem here.
1: Well, Mark, this is so concerning to people here in the United States, and it's partly because of the recent evidence gathered from pregnant women in the U.S. who were exposed to Zika while traveling to the affected regions. Uh, Certainly, there's been reports of several babies who were born healthy, but also several women who suffered miscarriages, one woman who gave birth to a baby with microcephaly, which is the birth defect that we're now associating with exposure to the virus. So just tremendous concern everywhere. There have been also more cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome reported
0: in connection to the Zika exposure. And in about 30% of the cases, patients suffered severe paralysis.
1: So the White House is planning a summit of experts convening public health officials and mosquito control experts for a meeting at the CDC in Atlanta on April 1st. And I I think we need to remember in this one, the United States is not in isolation. And I think the United States is trying to work cooperatively with all of the other countries. This is a a human problem, not a national problem. But they are taking all precautions ahead of time. Each state is uh, expected to have its own plan of action to reduce the threat. And when public health threats like Zika emerge, the healthcare community has to be prepared. Uh, and that means everybody. And often it's nurses at the front line of that care. And nursing is a topic that our guest today is an expert in. Dr. Mary Jo Asi is Director of Nursing Practice and Work Environment at the American Nurses Association. You know, she'll be talking about their efforts to accelerate the pace of training and education to help nurses best serve the growing needs of the healthcare community in the 21st century. And Lori Robertson will be stopping by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter.
0: We love hearing from you.
1: Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Mary Jo Ossi in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Mary Ann O'Hare, with this week's headline news.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. President Obama's pick to fill the seat left vacant on the Supreme Court has had some experience with health legislation. Merrick Garland, a Chief Justice for the U.S. Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia. Garland was approved for his current position with a bipartisan majority in the Senate, but faces stiff confirmation as GOP Senate leader Mitch McConnell has vowed to block any nominee put forth by the president. Garland, considered a moderate, has presided over several health-related issues, presiding over a decision not to rehear a case involving mandated birth control coverage under the Affordable Care Act. He also ruled in favor of hospitals, challenging Medicaid's formula for paying for hospital care. Garland previously served as a federal prosecutor under the Bush administration and has been known to work well across party lines. The CDC has released new guidelines for prescribing opiates to patients. The opioid addiction crisis has reached epidemic proportions, 47,000 overdose deaths in 2014 alone. They're now recommending frontline clinicians default first to prescribing non-opioid medications for pain. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention urging primary care doctors to try physical therapy, exercise and over-the-counter pain meds before turning to stronger painkillers for chronic pain. The CDC director Tom Frieden saying the facts of addiction and death from users of opioids such as Oxycontin and Vicodin are well documented and clinicians should only prescribe narcotics as a last resort starting only with three-day prescriptions. These recommendations are merely voluntary at this point. States are also being proactive. States such as Florida and New York have cracked down on pill mills using databases to monitor what doctors are prescribing. And this week, Massachusetts signed into law a seven-day limit on first-time prescriptions for opioids, the first of its kind in the nation. More evidence linking the Zika virus to birth defects in babies born to women exposed while pregnant. A study reported in the journal Lancet looked at pregnancy data from French Polynesia where there was an earlier outbreak and found higher rates of babies born with microcephaly in that population. The Lancet study supporting the World Health Organization's warning for pregnant women to avoid becoming infected and to take necessary precautions. Meanwhile, a U.S. vaccine developed to combat dengue fever, another mosquito-borne virus, has proven 100% effective in clinical trials. More trials are underway. Fluoride treatments, long a standard care option for pediatric dental patients, is gaining traction in adult dentistry as well. Clinicians finding the treatment serve to increase oral cavity protections that guard against plaque buildup and acids in the mouth that break down enamel over time. No cavities, no drill. No problem. And trying to quit smoking? Not easy. But a recent study shows going cold turkey may be the easiest route to getting there. A study of several thousand smokers in England showed that while both those going cold turkey and those slowly weaning off their tobacco habit received the patch and smoking cessation counseling, those who went cold turkey were more likely to be smoke-free after six months. The findings suggesting the notion of quitting once and for all is enhanced by picking a quick day and just doing it. I'm Arianna here with these healthcare headlines.
0: we're speaking today with Dr. Mary Jo Asi, Director of Nursing Practice and Work Environment at the American Nurses Association, an organization dedicated to advancing the interest and the professional environment for the nation's 3.4 million registered nurses. Dr. Asi previously served as the Director of Professional Practice and Magnet Program Director for the Virginia Commonwealth University Health System and was the Director of Health and Research at the Valley Health System. Dr. Asi is a member of the Virginia Nurses Association and is a graduate of Pace University Family Nurse Practitioner Program. She earned her doctorate of nurse practice at George Washington University. Dr. Asi, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, you know, Mary Jo, your organization uh, was founded in the late 1800s at, at the time to advance nursing protocols for treating American soldiers. And During the past century, the American Nurses Association has mirrored the trajectory of growth of the profession itself. And your organization now uh, advocates for some three and a half million nursing professionals working across multiple disciplines. I wonder if you could tell our listeners uh, more about the mission and the full scope of the work being undertaken at the ANA. So the American
3: Nurses Association represents the nation's 3.4 million registered nurses
0: and encompasses
3: uh, credentialing, philanthropy, research, leadership, advocacy, policy, and professional development. As a 120-year-old membership organization, also houses the nursing profession's code of ethics, as well as foundational documents for scope and standards of practice. Uh, For 26, uh, the American Nurses Association is doing a year-long campaign on the culture of safety uh, that really advocates for safety for both patients and for nurses and healthcare professionals. Our foundation, the American Nurses Foundation, is the charitable arm and really uh, looks to uh, use charitable contributions and research to advance the profession of nursing. The American Nurses Credentialing Center uh, is a third part of the enterprise, looks at our accreditation program processes, providing global credentialing for organizations that offer high-quality continuing nursing education programs, Uh, the Pathway to Excellence Program, credentials hospitals, and long-term care facilities that promote a culture that builds a positive, safe, and healthy nursing practice environment, and the ANCC's Magnet Recognition Program is viewed around the world as the ultimate seal for quality and confidence. It's a gold standard, really.
1: Well, Mary Jo, you and your colleagues in the ANA are, of course, uh, at the heart of what is going on that's cutting edge and innovative. And we were all so uh, delighted during the Affordable Care Act to see the president of ANA regularly at the table at the White House and really contributing to the evolution of that Legislation. So here we are. We have millions more insured Americans seeking care, which is a good thing. We have millions more people aging into Medicare. And we certainly have an unbelievable expansion of technology uh, and things that require an ever increasing complexity of preparation so that we can provide the care that's required. But I'm not sure that the American public fully understands the evolving role of the nurse in the 21st century healthcare system. So maybe talk with us just a little bit about how you and your colleagues at ANA and in the academy envision that role of nursing in this new world of healthcare? So we know
3: that nurses are the most trusted profession in America and the largest health profession in America. Nurses spend the most time with patients and their families 24-7, seven days a week. And although there is overlap with other health professionals, there's a whole realm of knowledge a distinct body of knowledge and expertise that nurses have in a unique way that they bring to this whole healthcare team nurses really have been moving from functional and perhaps more task-oriented doers to strategic partners and leaders in the healthcare team as One thing that I would say is there is no question we're seeing greater numbers of baccalaureate-prepared nurses entering workforce today, uh, due in part to recommendations from the IOM to increase BSN-prepared nurses to 80% of the nursing workforce by 2020, and in part by the American Nurses Credentialing Center Magnet Standards, which requires all managers to be BSN-prepared. And so it is becoming more complex. It is a more complex healthcare environment, and those requirements require nurses to have the level of education and preparation that we're discussing. I will say that the American Nurses Association has worked closely and we continue to work closely with organizations, other professional nursing and healthcare-focused organizations and consumer organizations and many others. Uh, One in particular uh, is the Organization of Associate Degree Nurses. we developed recommendations with that group for academic progression of nurses based on a variety of models that exist today. We're also aware that care is transitioning from the traditional inpatient hospital-centered model of care that many of us have grown up in to care in the ambulatory and community settings, and so the continuum of care becomes uh, increasingly important as a focus area. Uh, there is an immediate need to redesign care models in the ambulatory setting as frailer and more complex patients are being treated outside of the hospital setting, and registered nurses we know play a critical role in ensuring that this transition of care will be safe for patients. Nurses historically you know, have really spanned that spectrum in so many different roles in so many important ways, but we must ensure that, that nurses and registered nurses continue to be available to patients across that continuum of care for the expertise that they provide.
0: You know, Mary Jo, you mentioned the Institute of Medicine's groundbreaking report, The Future of Nursing, calling, as you said, for expanding the scope of a nurse education as well as advocating for nurse professionals to practice uh, at their highest level of training and I'm I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, your thought about what a milestone that report was, and what the ANA is doing to help advance those recommendations.
3: Yeah, the Institute of Medicine's report and recommendations did quite a lot to really focus beyond you know the nursing profession, even the healthcare professions, to what is happening in healthcare today and nursing's important role in that. And so, uh, some of the areas uh, that the IOM report covered included scope of practice to make sure that registered nurses and advanced practice registered nurses both are working to their full scope of practice. And we know historically, uh, and as a family nurse practitioner, I can say in experience that although we have research that over and over again, you know, supports the safety and efficacy of the care rendered by advanced practice registered nurses, we continue to, you know, kind of hit challenges and barriers in that regard. Uh, really, we're looking for you know a day and a future where independent practice, just routine and kind of embedded into our healthcare culture, and we believe that will be the uh, best possible scenario for all of our citizens in the U.S. The scope of practice also extends to the registered nurse. And so right now, the American Nurses Association has been conducting a professional issues panel on our end barriers uh, to practice to, again, make sure that registered nurses are practicing to the full extent of their education at the institutional state, and federal levels. The American Nurses Association is an important partner uh, in the Coalition for Patients' Rights, including the Home Healthcare Planning and Improvement Act and the Improving Veterans Access to Quality Health Care Act and wanting to move together towards that, that uh, vision of the future of best care for all patients.
1: I'd like to shift a little bit perhaps to some of the research that we now have available on the links between the type of health professional providing care and the outcome of care for the people to whom it's provided. And I know you've recently shared some compelling data on the link between the preparation of nursing professionals and patient outcomes. Maybe you could share some of that with our listeners. And what does that mean in terms of the potential for continually improving patient outcomes?
3: So researchers have demonstrated a significant relationship between nursing education and improved patient outcomes. Uh, a seminal study by Linda Aiken in 2003 demonstrated the relationship between nursing education and patient mortality. You know, basically she was able to demonstrate in a large scale study that 90 per 1000 patient deaths uh, were seen with a workforce with a 20% BSN prepared nurses which was reduced to 67 per thousand patient deaths when BSN prepared nurses comprised 60% or more of the hospital workforce. In another study by Blagan & Good in 2009, um, these researchers found that lower rates of heart failure mortality, fewer hospital-acquired pressure ulcers, lower rates of failure to rescue, and shorter hospitalization in organizations with a higher proportion of BSNs were seen. So I, the Institute of Medicine and others you know, looked at that research to continue to advance the uh, academic preparation of our nursing workforce. Since the year 2000, new graduate non-BSN prepared nurses were 60% of the workforce compared to 40% BSN prepared nurses, and we're now graduating 45% BSN nurses. So we are moving in the right direction that way to meet that IOM goal of 80% of uh, baccalaureate prepared nurses by 2020.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Mary Jo Assi, Director of Nursing Practice and Work Environment at the American Nurses Association for the nation's 3.4 million registered nurses. Mary Jo, nursing has always been the high-touch discipline within the medical profession, but institutionally, how do you envision the training and educational models changing to adapt to the new high-tech reality without sacrificing the high-touch qualities, essentially for the nursing profession?
3: So one of the things that is so important to the nursing profession is that ability to connect with patients and people in the community, wherever they're providing care, that makes that human connection so important to uh, how they're partnering for better health, that nurses are a caring profession, that they really provide care in a way that has that human touch. But the real challenge, as you see, is that we are in a very high-tech environment. I will say that that has been with us for uh, any number of years. And so as you go back, as the intensive care unit uh, started to really form up and we started to see much more reliance on technology and healthcare uh, from everywhere from the operating room to the intensive care unit, emergency departments, technology is with us to stay. Nurses do need to be highly skilled. Uh, that advancement of education plays largely into that to focus on both the tech and the touch. Uh, in, in their academic preparation. And once they go beyond that into nurse residency programs and into orientation programs as new nurses and beyond, to be able to maintain that competence uh, with the technology that they need to use to uh, really provide the best care.
1: Well, Mary Jo, I think it's obvious there's just been such an explosion of knowledge for all professionals, really. But there's also been that explosion in the demands on practice that's led to the generation of the um, nurse residency programs for new RNs in the hospital. You have so many uh, initiatives going on at ANA. Tell us about some of the innovations and, and kind of the bold gestures that you're supporting at the American Nurses Association that you think really just significantly move us forward into the future.
3: So some of those really kind of have to do with our professional issues panels, everything from nurse fatigue. to looking at workplace violence and incivility in the Mm -hmm. workplace to understand better, you know, what are the ways that we can uh, mitigate that work? And we've done substantial work in the area of staffing, nurse staffing. Uh, We uh, completed in November a staffing paper and the associations between nurse staffing and uh, quality and uh, uh, patient safety outcomes and nurse outcomes. Uh, Care coordination is high on our radar level in terms of being able to articulate that nurses have really traditionally always done that role. And we've done it very well. And that continues to be needed, emphasized, and really focused upon in terms of what that's going to look like in new healthcare delivery systems and the critical role of the nurse in that work.
0: Mary Jo, when I think about nurses, I think the word that comes to mind is safety. And I want to talk a little bit about the growing movement of safety in the healthcare arena, getting some attention. And uh, we know that somewhere between 100,000 to as many of a quarter million Americans lose their life through medical errors. But a recent guest on our show, Dr. Gandhi of the National Patient Safety Foundation, also pointed to the growing need to protect medical professionals from harm as well. And it's also a prominent theme of the American Nurses Association. You can you tell our listeners about the culture of safety for your organization this year and what you're planning to do to address this important issue?
3: So the year Culture of Safety really is a campaign uh, that the American Nurses Association is in the middle of, actually. We launched it in January. Uh, While safety and uh, healthcare quality have been on all level of healthcare organization, at the organizational level, individual, professional levels, uh, really when you talk about embedding that in the DNA of the work that all of us do, it really has to become a cultural transformation in that it has to be embedded in everything that we do. And so the ANA has taken that on this year, again, to highlight the importance of not only talking about this in more of a siloed fashion, you know, and really looking at it as a whole cultural and transformational change. So we took that opportunity to highlight uh, much of the work of the American Nurses Association that fits so well into that culture of safety, which is, uh, again, a, a huge and prominent uh, a focus for the American Nurses Association to look at everything from uh, some of the topics that I've mentioned earlier, such as nurse fatigue and the impact on both the nurse and the patient, uh, workplace violence and instability, again, the impact of what happens when, you know, you have a workplace that is not safe and it's not, uh, it's not a, good, it's not a uh, healthy workplace. So if you have, a, have an unhealthy work environment, it is going to impact patient care. It's going to impact patient outcomes. There's uh, certainly a lot of research that supports that. And so um, all of the themes that run through the culture of safety are things I think that, that we've heard of before, but it's tying it together in one place. And so the American Nurses Association is providing every month uh, of 2016 uh, a large body of information, toolkits, um, and other kinds of um, uh, activities that an organization or individual could bring forward to help to move cultural transformation forward in the workplace.
1: Well, Mary Jo, you've uh, identified and spoken to so many critical issues uh, affecting nursing and, and of course, the patients they serve. I wonder uh, if I could ask you to comment uh, on a very timely issue of great importance in the country. Uh, We cannot pick up a newspaper. We cannot talk to our representatives in Washington or our governors without uh, addressing the opioid epidemic that, that is just such a scourge in the country and the contributor to so many deaths of people of all ages. And I know that uh, both in the policy room and around the water cooler uh, at the ANA, there must be a lot of discussions going on about how nursing can contribute to stopping this epidemic. And I wonder if you'd like to say a few words about that.
3: So the American Nurses Association, yes. um, And we we have uh, actually a dedicated, uh, you know, kind of work group right now that's specifically focusing on the work that is coming out of, uh, um, you know, Washington D.C. and across the nation, and concerns related about, uh, you know, opioid uh, issues. And so, um, we actually met just yesterday on this, and are, are coming up with really finalizing uh, recommendations that we're going to bring forward uh, on the part of the American Nurses Association, and you know, be looking to partner with other professional associations, again, in areas where we feel we can uh, do the best effort. And so we really look at a couple of different areas when we look at this. And one is, you know, what is the um, education uh, of of, uh, healthcare professionals that is needed uh, to avoid, you know, issues with opioid Mm -hmm. uh, addiction or over-prescribing? So it's the prescribing uh, piece as well as the education and counseling piece for registered nurses and then what happens if we see addiction, and what is the treatment aspect. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we need to balance that with a lot of work that's been done in the area of effective pain management. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that uh, we have a past history of not necessarily doing so well with effective pain management, and so we want to be sure that when we're exploring, as we're exploring this issue, we are keeping that, again, high on our radar to be sure that we are not, uh, not, not taking that into consideration. And so, that can be anything from looking at, you know, interventions that are non-opioid in nature, again, to the effective use of opioids were indicated. And so we're looking at that entire 360-degree spectrum as we move forward to develop our recommendations and uh, take those
0: forward. We've been speaking today with Dr. Mary Jo Assi, Director of Nursing Practice and Work Environment at the American Nurses Association. You can learn more about their work by going to nursingworld.org. Mary Jo, thank you so much for joining us on Conversation.
4: Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton said that she didn't know where her opponent, Bernie Sanders, was when she was trying to get health care legislation passed in 1993 and 1994, when she was, quote, standing up against the insurance companies, standing up against the drug companies. Actually, Sanders co-sponsored a single-payer health insurance bill in 1993, and Clinton thanked him for his work on the issue that year. Sanders, who was a member of the House back then, didn't work with Clinton to pass the administration's overhaul of the health care system. Instead, he worked, as he does now, for a single-payer system in which everyone is insured by the government. The Clinton campaign says that's her point, that Sanders didn't join her fight, quote, against the insurance companies. But her comment leaves the impression that Sanders wasn't doing anything to change the health care system back then, and that's not the case. In 1993, Sanders was an original co-sponsor of the American Health Security Act, along with 52 other representatives. The legislation sought to institute a state-based universal program. He spoke a few times on the House floor about the merits of a Canadian-style system, sounding very much as he does today in making the argument for what he calls Medicare for All. Back in 1993, Sanders tried to encourage Clinton to move to single-payer, but that didn't happen. When the White House-backed bill was introduced in the House in November 1993 with 103 co-sponsors, Sanders was not among them. Yet Clinton wrote a thank you to Sanders that year on a photo of the two of them mentioning his commitment to real health care access for all Americans. In 1995, Sanders said in another floor speech pushing for single-payer that he had disagreed with the Clinton plan. While he didn't support the White House's health care plan, to say he was missing in 1993 from efforts to overhaul health care ignores his push for a single-payer plan at the time. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Tel Aviv computer scientist and developer Oded Ben Dove has been coding since he was six years old, and he's always been interested in hacking systems to make them better. So when this young entrepreneur unveiled a hands-free gaming system on Israeli TV, a local quadriplegic in the viewing audience took notice and urged him to think about adapting this hands-free gaming system to help quadriplegics interact with their smartphones by using simple head movements. Dove couldn't resist the challenge from Giara Livna, who'd been paralyzed for eight years following an accident.
5: And the guy on the call said, Hello, my name is Giora. I can't move my hands or legs. Could you make me a smartphone I could use? And that really caught my ear, caught my heart. It was a chance to apply all my techie knowledge towards a, a greater good.
1: The two have partnered together on the project, deciding to call the device Sesame phone as in open sesame.
5: So gradually and iteratively we added more and more configuration parameters to the to the program. So someone could opt for big head movement or very small head movement. You could use our extended voice commands or you could use the built-in Google dictation capabilities. We really try to make it as wide as possible for our audience.
1: They say the results for participants have been nothing short of miraculous. Ben Dove says he has seen both children and adults formerly locked in by paralysis literally come alive.
5: It's so emotional and every user uses it differently. Someone immediately calls his wife. Children, you know, rush to the the most popular game and play that.
1: The Sesame phone now has hundreds of users around Israel, but they're gathering funding to make the smartphone software available around the world. And Ben Dove says they've got bigger plans for developing this and other systems that are geared to assist the handicapped community.
5: We broadened our vision to, which is currently equality through technology. I feel there are a lot of technologies that can really be life-changing for some people, but no one necessarily is working in that direction. We're positioned well within the special needs space, and we can keep supporting and, and developing our current products, but use new technologies and, and offer a completely different product as we're exposed to more and more needs.
1: Sesame Phone's tagline is, Touch is overrated. Sesame phone, a simply devised hands-free interface that allows the paralyzed and physically handicapped to interact with their world through their smartphones using simple head movements, allowing them a new level of independence and a new chance at self-driven social interaction. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm
2: Mark Maselli.
1: Peace and health.